Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Tonight we have Bluebird Bluebird by Attica Locke. It's a powerful thriller about the explosive intersection of love, race, and justice. Attica considers herself a Texan in exile, one with a complicated relationship to the truck stop towns up and down Highway 59 in East Texas, where she sets Bluebird Bluebird. Everything that staying in East Texas meant for Attica and her family, and the intersection of that meeting with the current political climate, was the inspiration for the novel. Darren Matthews, a Texas Ranger with a tarnished badge, faces the issues of plague every black American who encounters law enforcement, never quite knowing when it's safe to follow the rules. Matthews soon finds himself in the center of a murder mystery that turns a classic Southern script about race inside out. Attica is the author of several novels and the winner of the 2016 Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction. And, and of the Ernest Gaines Award for Literary Excellence. Her novels have been longlisted for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction and nominated for an Edgar Award. She was a writer and producer on the Fox Drama Empire. She's a native of Houston, Texas, and now she lives here in LA with her husband and daughter. So please help me welcome Attica Love. Thank you. Thank you. Can everybody hear me? Yeah. And you can raise it. Yeah. <laughs> 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 that came out. Hi, Hi. <laughs> I'm going to do something different tonight. I'm going to simply start with the work. So, take a trip with me to East Texas. This is Shelby County in 2016. Geneva Sweet ran an orange extension cord past Maeva Greenwood, beloved wife and mother. May she rest with her heavenly father. Late morning sunlight pinpricked through the trees, dotting a constellation of light on the blanket of pine needles at Geneva's feet as she snaked the cord between Maeva's sister and her husband Leland, father and brother in Christ. She gave the cord a good tug making her way up the modest hill, careful not to step on the graves themselves, only the well-worn grooves between the headstones, which were spaced at haphazard and odd angles like the teeth of a pauper. She was loving a paper shopping bag from the Brookshire Brothers in Timpson, along with a small radio from which a Muddy Waters record, one of Joe's favorites, whistled through the speakers. Have you ever been walking, walking down that old lonesome road? When she arrived at the final resting place of Joe Petey Pie's suite, Husband and father, and forgive him, Lord, a devil on guitar. She set the radio carefully on top of the polished chunk of granite, snapping the power cord into its hiding place behind the headstone. The one next to it was identical in shape and size. It belonged to another Joe Sweet, younger by 40 years and just as dead. Geneva opened the shopping bag and pulled out a paper plate covered in tinfoil, an offering for her only son. Two fried pies, perfect half-moons of hand-rolled dough filled with brown sugar and fruit and baptized in grease. Geneva's specialty and Lil' Joe's favorite. She could feel their warmth through the bottom of the plate, their buttery scent softening the sharp sting of pine in the air. 
She balanced the plate on the headstone and bent down to brush fallen needles from the graves, keeping a hand on the slab of granite at all times, ever mindful of her arthritic knees. Below her, an 18-wheeler tore down Highway 59, sending up a gust of hot and gassy air through the trees. It was a warm one for October, but nowadays they all were. Near 80 today, she'd heard, and here she was thinking it was time to pull the holiday decorations from the trailer out back of her place. Climate change, they call it. This keep up and I'll live long enough to see hell on earth, I guess. She told all this to the two men in her life, told them about the new fabric store in Timpson, the fact that Faith was bugging her for a car, the ugly shade of yellow Wally painted the ice house, looked like somebody coughed up a big mess of phlegm and threw it on the walls. She didn't mention the killings, though, or the trouble bubbling in town. She gave them that little bit of peace. She kissed, kissed the tips of her fingers, laying them on the first headstone, then the second. She let her touch linger on her son's grave, giving out a weary sigh. Seemed like death had a mind to follow her around in this lifetime. It was a sly shadow at her back, as single-minded as a dog on a hunt. She heard a crunch of pine needles behind her, a rustling of leaves blown from the nearby cottonwoods, and turned to see Mitty, the colored cemetery's unofficial groundskeeper. They got batteries for them things, he said, nodding at the small radio while steadying himself by leaning on the concrete stone for Beth Ann Solomon, daughter and sister gone too soon. You send me the propane bill time, you get it, Geneva said. Mitty was older than Geneva, nearing 80 probably. He was a dark-skinned man with small, uh, a dark-skinned man and small with two legs thin as twigs and ashy as chalk. He spent his afternoons in the small shed on the property chewing off stray dogs and vermin. Five days a week he was out here with a racing magazine and a chair root, watching over the gathering of souls, keeping an eye on his future home. He tolerated Geneva's particular way of caring for the dead, the quilts in the wintertime, the lights strung at Christmas, the pies and the constant hum of the blues. He was eyeing those sweets, reaching a finger to lift the foil for a better look. They peach, Geneva said, and they ain't got your name no one else. <laughs> Later, she eased off the highway, pulling in front of Geneva Sweet Sweets, a low-slung, flat-roofed cafe painted red and white. It had cinched curtains in the windows and a sign out front with a lit-up arrow pointing to the door, advertising barbecue pork sandwich $4.99, best fried pies in Shelby County. She parked in her usual spot, a Pontiac-sized groove in the dirt along the side of the cafe. Wendy's uh, ancient green mercury was stationed right in front of the door. The rusting 20-year-old car looked like a pinata, beaten past its breaking point, overflowing with old license plates and iron skillets, two wig stands, old clothes, and a small TV whose antenna was sticking out of the left rear window. The tiny brass bell on the cafe's door rang softly as Geneva let herself in. Two of her regulars looked up from their seats at the counter, Huxley, a local retiree, and Tim, a long-haul trucker who stayed on the Houston-Chicago route week in and week out. Sheriff's here, Huxley said as Geneva passed behind him. At the end of the counter, she opened the gate that led to her main office, the space between the kitchen and her customers. Rolled in about 30 minutes after you left, he said, both he and Tim craning their necks to gauge her reaction. You must have made 90 miles the whole way, Tim said. Geneva kept her lips pressed together, swallowing a pill of rage. She lifted an apron from a hook by the door that led to the kitchen. It was a whole day with that other one, ain't that what you said? Tim was halfway through a ham sandwich and talking with his mouth full. He swallowed and washed it down with a swig of coke. Van Horn took a sweet time then. Sheriff, Wendy said, from her perch at the other end of the counter, she was sitting in front of a collection of mason jars, each filled with the very best of her garden. Plump red peppers, chopped green tomatoes threaded with cabbage and onion, whole stalks of okra soaked in vinegar, 
Geneva lifted each drawer one by one, holding it up to the light and double-checking the seal. I, I got some other stuff outside, Wendy said, as Geneva pulled a marker from the pocket of her apron and started writing a price on each lid uh, of each drawer. Well, you can leave the chow-chow and pickled okra, Geneva said, but I gotta draw the line on all that other junk you're trying to sell. She nodded out the front window to Wendy's car. Wendy and Geneva were the same age, though Wendy had a tendency to adjust hers from year to year depending on her audience or mood. She was a short woman with mannish shoulders and an affected disregard for her appearance. Her hair was gray and pomaded into a tight bun. At least it had been tight the last she combed it, which could have been anywhere from three to seven days ago. <laughs> she was wearing the bottom half of a yellow pantsuit, a faded Houston Rockets t-shirt, and men's brogues on her feet. Geneva people like to buy old shit off the highway. It makes them feel good about how you live now. They call it antiques. <laughs> I call it rust, Geneva said, and the answer is no. Her place had been born of an idea that colored folks who couldn't stop anywhere else in this county, well, they could stop here. Get a good meal, a little bite off a bottle of whiskey if you could keep quiet about it. Get your hair cleaned up uh, before you made it um, to family or a job up north. Hope, a job that you hoped would still be there by the time you got on the other side of Arkansas because there was no point in going unless you were getting all the way past Arkansas. Forty some odd years after the death of Jim Crow, not much had changed. Geneva's was as preserved in time as the yellowing calendars on the cafe's walls. She was a constant along a highway that was forever carrying people past her. Wendy looked at the black faces in the room, trying to figure out some reason for the grim mood. The tension running plain. Behind her, the jukebox flipped to another of the 50 tunes that played around the clock. This one of Charlie Pride battled with a gospel hurt on it. For a moment, no one spoke. To Geneva, Wendy said, when the hell's got you so testy this morning? Sheriff Van Horn is out back, Huxley said, nodding toward the cafe's rear wall, which was papered with curly wall calendars, advertising everything from malt liquor to a local funeral home going back 15 years. And beyond that rear wall was the kitchen where Dennis was working on a pot of oxtails. Geneva could smell the bay leaves soaking in beef fat and garlic, onion and liquid smoke. Beyond the kitchen screen door lay a wide plot of land, red dirt dotted with buttercup weeds and crabgrass, rolling a hundred yards or so to the banks of a rust-colored bayou that was Shelby County's western border. Brought three deputies too. What's going on? Geneva sighed. They pulled the body at the bayou this morning. Wendy looked dumbfounded. Another one? A white one. Aw, shit. Huxley nodded, pushing his coffee away. Y'all remember that white girl uh, got killed down to Corrigan? They hauled in nearly every black man within 30 miles, in and out of every church and juke joint, every black-owned business, hunting for the killer, anybody who fit the bill they had in their mind. Geneva felt something dislodged in her breast, felt the fear she'd been trying to staunch give way rising to like to choke her from the inside out. And ain't nobody done damn thing about that black man got killed up the road last week, Huxley said. They didn't think about that man, Tim said, tossing a grease-stained napkin on his plate, not when a white girl come up dead. You mark my words, Huxley said, looking gravely at each and every black face in the cafe. Somebody is going down for this. So. Black Texans. I grew up on Blues and Barbecue, John Lee Hooker, uh, Johnny Taylor. If I'm going to tell the truth on it, there was some Johnny Cash in there too, Patsy Cline. Um, I have my whole life had a kind of ambivalent relationship with where I'm from um, because I love Texas 
and yet it consistently and politically and culturally breaks my heart. And so when I tried to think about telling a story, where this all came from is I was in the middle of working on Empire, and I remember having a profound sense of wanting to go home. And I meant I missed books, but I also meant I wanted to go home to Texas. And I wanted to tell stories along Highway 59 where my family is from. Um, and I was trying to think of a character that could take me in a series from town to town. Who gets to Rome in Texas? And the answer was clear that it was a Texas Ranger. Now, I had said my whole life I will never write a cop. I just wrote a cop. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I'm married to a public defender who detests police officers. Um, I just didn't think I could, I, I could see the world through the lens of, of law enforcement. And then I read the book Ghetto Side, and I read about the fact that her, what she's positing in that book is that we talk so much about the over-policing of black life, but that the under-policing of black life, the under-prosecuting of crimes against black life, is truly how this country was founded. Um, so I thought, let me try this. Let me try a Texas Ranger who feels as ambivalent about law as I feel about law and as ambivalent about Texas as I feel. And that is how Darren Matthews was born. When this, when we meet him, he is on suspension. He's done some shit, which I'll let you guys find out. But he's been allowed to testify in a case. And so I'm just gonna read a little bit to introduce you guys to Darren. Darren Matthews set his Stetson on the edge of the witness stand, brimmed down, the way his uncles had taught him. For court today, the Rangers let him wear the official uniform, a button-down starch within an inch of its life, and a pair of pressed dark slats. The silver badge was pinned above his left breast pocket. He hadn't worn it in weeks, not since the Ronnie Malvo investigation, which has led to his suspension. Hadn't worn his wedding ring in his long either. It, too, was a part of the day's costume. He resisted the urge to fiddle with it, turning the metal around the ring finger of his inexplicably, inexplicably, inexplicably swollen hand. He again circled the drain of his single memory past 8 o'clock last night. A styrofoam plate of smoked chicken, a TV tray, a bottle of Jim Bean, and blues on his uncle's high five. The clink of ice that first pour, these were the last things he remembered. And the relief, of course, that comes with surrender. Yes, he was powerless over his marriage. Step one. Step two, pour three fingers and repeat. Step three, let Johnny Taylor's raw vocals take over. His plain spoken masculinity. His claim on the things a man ought to have in this lifetime, including the love of a good woman, her loyalty and willingness to wade through shit creek with him if that's what it took to get on the other side. The blue guitar, the amber warmth of bourbon, they floated through the edge of his memory, and then there was nothing but the sudden hardness of the wood on the back porch of his family homestead, where Darren had awakened at dawn. He'd had a splinter in his cheek and no idea what happened to his hand. There was no blood, just bruising above the knuckles and a gnawing pain that wouldn't let up without four Motrin. But he had clearly made contact with something on the property, something that hit that hard. The familiar morning after fog of shame he'd been living in since he and Lisa split had dulled his curiosity, and he'd made no attempt to piece together what had happened. The facts as he knew them, he drank alone and woke up alone. His car keys were still in the freezer where he'd left them in a moment of spectacular prescience. It appeared he'd hurt no one but himself and he could live with that. But he was damn tired though, tired of sleeping alone, eating alone, nothing to do but wait on the results of this grand jury and his wife to tell him he could come home. 
He'd broken one of his uncle's cardinal rules, never go to town looking sorry or second-rate or like a man who felt like explaining himself 15 times a day. Even his uncle Clayton, a one-time defense lawyer and professor of constitutional law, was known to say that for men like us, a baggy pair of pants or a shirt tail hanging out was walking probable cause. His identical twin and ideological foil, William, a lawman and ranger himself, was quick to agree. Don't give them a reason to stop you, son. The men rarely stood on common ground, belying the trope of twins who think with one mind, but for the fact that they were Matthew's men, a tribe going back generations in rural East Texas, black men for whom self-regard was both a natural state of being and a survival technique. His uncles adhered to those ancient rules of Southern living, for they understood how easily a colored man's general comportment could turn into a matter of life and death. Darren had always wanted to believe that theirs was the last generation to have to live this way, that change might trickle down from the White House, when in fact the opposite had proven to be true. In the wake of Obama, America had told on itself. Still, they were giants to him, his uncles, men of statue and purpose, who each believed he found in his respective profession a way to make the country fundamentally hospitable to black life. For William the Ranger, the law would save us, by protecting us, by prosecuting crimes against us as zealously, zealously as it prosecutes crimes against whites. No, Clayton, the defense lawyer said, the law is a lie. A lie black folks need protection from. A set of rules that were written against us <clears throat> from the time ink was first set to parchment. It was a, <clears throat> it was a sacred debate that held black life as holy and worthy of continuance and in need of safekeeping. A debate that Darren had been following since he was toddling between their long legs under the kitchen table. They raised Darren since he was only a few days old and he'd spent his life straddling the family's ideological divide. I do want you to understand Darren. So I wanted to read a little bit more about because the whole story is this man who um, whose badge is tarnished, who's on suspension, ends up taking his ass into LARP to figure out what the fuck <laughs> happened um, to a black man who washed up in a bayou, a lawyer from Chicago, and then a local white girl. He has a friend, a white guy, um, who he's run with since he was a kid, who's actually a federal agent. And Greg is the one who calls him and says, you heard about the trouble up in LARP. Shelby County just passed the western border. Tiny little place. I, I don't even think it counts more than 200 people total. Yeah, Darren said, remembering a small cafe on the highway up there, stopping once for a Coke. I've driven through. Yeah, sure. Well, they got two bodies in the past six days. One, a black guy from Chicago, a little younger than us, 35, I think. Seems he was just passing through. Two days later, someone pulled his body out of the Adiyak Bayou. Jesus. And then just this morning, another one washed up, Greg said. A local white girl, 20 years old. They connected? That's what I'd like to know. Larkin had a homicide in years, and now they got two in one week. I got an inside a call from somebody in the Dallas County Medical Examiner's Office, and Shelby County had them do the autopsy, autopsy on the man, Michael Wright. As soon as they unzipped the body bag and took a good look, they had a lot of questions for the sheriff. How's that, Darren said. Something to do with the condition of the body. That's all I could get on the phone. Well, what's the cause of death? Drowned, Greg said. 
But that just means he was still breathing when he went in. The drowning thing, the sheriff is no doubt going to cling to that, shutting down any other possibility. Nobody wants a, another Jasper. The mention of Jasper, Texas churned up Darren's insides, as Darren knew it would. Darren had been a 23-year-old second-year law student in 1998, still grieving the sudden death of his uncle William that same year. He was in a student lounge getting a sandwich between summer classes when the reports of the dragging death of James Byrd Jr. came on every TV screen. Darren never made it to his next class. He stayed there and watched hour after hour of cable news coverage. It was hard to put into words the fury he felt at the fact that someone had literally dragged a black man through a town not a hundred miles from the place where Darren grew up, dragged him until his head came off. He felt ashamed of his country and ashamed of his home state. But he also felt a hot rage at the students and professors around him, most of them white northerners, clucking their tongues and whispering Texas in a way that suggested both pity and disdain for a land that Darren loved, a state that had made him a gentleman and a fighter in equal measure. It was hard to put any of it into words, so he did not try. He simply walked out. By the end of that summer, he'd applied to the Texas Department of Public Safety to be a state trooper, the first step in a nearly decade-long quest to become a member of the most venerable law enforcement agency known as the Texas Rangers, the ones who rolled in when local law enforcement couldn't or wouldn't solve a crime. Darren had decided on the immediacy of the only law that mattered to him then. Boots on the ground, hand-stitched, preferably gator or cowhide, a badge and a Colt 45. The internal scales that forever weighed on his heart tipped in favor of his Uncle William. Clayton, the lawyer, when he heard that his nephew had quit law school, said only I'm profoundly disappointed in your son. Darren asked Greg, he was killed first, the black guy? Yeah, pulled out of the bayou on Friday three days ago, then the girl washed up a quarter of a mile downstream just this morning. That's odd, Darren thought. Southern fables usually went the other way around. A white woman killed or harmed in some way, real or imagined, and then like the moon follows the sun, a black man ends up dead. So. and we can you know, open up to a dialogue. And this piece is for my sister who's here, my two brothers who are here, my daughter. And, um, this is really the part where he's heading up Highway 59 and writing this was me writing a love letter to the people I come from. And it gives you a little taste of, 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 of this whole region of the state, which is not the um, dusty southwest. It's the piney woods. It's the big thicket, they call it. U.S. Uh, Highway 59 is a line that runs through the heart of East Texas, a thread on the map that ties together small towns like knots on a string from Laredo to Texarkana or on the northern border. For black folks born and bred in the rural communities along the highway's north-south route, Highway 59 has always represented an arc of possibility. It was hope paved and pointing north. Not Darren's people, though. He was Texas-bred on both sides going all the way back to slavery. Since Reconstruction, no one had ever left the piney woods of the eastern edge of the state, save for a few uncles and cousins fleeing the law on his mother's side. Her people stayed because they were poor. The Matthewses stayed because they were not. From early on, they owned farm-rich land, bequeathed by the same man who gave his favorite slaves the surname Matthews, or so the legend went. And black folks didn't just up and leave that kind of wealth to start over someplace foreign and cold. No, the Matthews is dug deeper into the soil, 
planting cotton and corn and the roots of a family that would be theirs alone and not a pecuniary unit convertible to cash at will. They farmed and made enough to raise generations of men and women and send dozens of them to college and graduate school. They made a life that could rival what was possible in Chicago or Detroit or Gary, Indiana. They were not willing to cede an entire state to the hatred of, of a bunch of nut scratching, tobacco spit, and crackers. Now, money allowed for that choice, sure it did, but money also demanded something of them, and the Matthews were willing to give it. They built a colored school in Camilla, offered small business loans to colored folks when they could, and dedicated their lives to public service, becoming teachers and country doctors and lawyers and agitators when the times called for it. What they were not going to be was run off. The belief that they were special, that they had the stones to endure what others couldn't, was the most quintessentially Texas thing about them. It was an arrogance born of genuine fortitude and a streak of hard-headedness six generations deep. A Homeric shield against the petty jealousies and lethal injustices that so occupied white folks' free time. There were <laughs> Um, uh, uh, white folks, uh, they're impressive and intrusive gaze into every aspect of black life, from what you ate, to who you married, to the clothes you wear, to the music you play, to the way you wear your hair, to how you address them on the street. The Matthews family recognized it for what it was, a fevered obsession that didn't really have anything to do with them. It was a preoccupation that weakened a man looking anywhere but at himself. No, we weren't going anywhere. Darren had heard it his whole life. You could run. Wouldn't nobody judge you if you did, but you could also stay and fight. Sunset, sunsets on the back porch of old home place in Camilla. William, his uncle, hat brimmed down on the porch railing, used to look out over the, look out over the family's land and say to Darren, the, the nobility is in the fight, son, in all things. And it was the fight that had called Darren home all those years ago that put Darren's four wheels on Highway 59 now, pointed north toward Shelby County. Tripping on my words, but I think it's because I'm really excited. I like this book a lot. Um, it means a lot to me. So that's Darren. He's going, hi, Carrie. Nice to see you. <laughs> He's going to end up finding himself in this town without the um, authorization of anybody in the Texas Rangers and tries to figure out what happened. Um, and the lawyer's widow rolls into town, too. This woman who's highly cosmopolitan, flew from Europe to New York to Dallas to rent a car to drive to Shelby County and figure out what happened to my husband. The two of them end up trying to solve this crime. Uh, and that's the gist of the story. Um, but I say over and over, the, 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 the thematic things in this that are meaningful to me are this question of the, the ambivalence about law. And, the ambivalent, and, and that being a stand-in for to what degree is this country ours? Um, to what degree is America my birthright? Um, it gets confusing sometimes. Um, and, and to what degree are we fools for having profound love for America or profound patriotism? Um, that was on my mind. And I also kind of wanted to flip this, tell a different side of the Great Migration, that we know the story of people who left, and, but my people are defined by the fact that we stayed. Um, and I wanted to turn the whole stand your ground concept. I wanted to rob that from a George Zimmerman and say that the flip side of stand your ground is, oh, I built this ship. I'm not going anywhere. Um, sorry, Claire. 
say so much. Hi, Fernando. <laughs> Thank you. You are. You wrote this in the show. I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> because, um, you know, we talked about this and um, you know, somebody like me who's uh, an immigrant, it's the same question, right? At what point are we changing the school? At what point are we, you know, when we came here, um, different kind of problems. But I hate to get that out, I'm about to start finding some of those people. Are you really raising some, some, uh, some, you know, some stuff? You got a character, you know, you know I love this. You got a character who is uh, very much defined by like the agent, mm -hmm. um, but also kind of like fish in a, in a fishbowl, kind of like jumping up against the wall. Anyway, when is the uh, when is the TV series on? We shall see. We shall see. It's <laughs> hard. Right? From the grandma to God's ears. Did you? Yes. It's interesting you brought that up because what went through my mind is you, I haven't read the book yet, so I haven't read it, but um, you know, I was thinking about a lot of the whole Mexicans who are really texting the Mexicans, you know, and how it all, it all is the same problem for them in Texas, even though, you know, they've been there forever, too. You know. mm -hmm. I don't know if you have any characteristics about that. It isn't, not here. But I'm working on book two now, and the idea of this is a series that is going to go towns up and down the highway, which means I've got from Laredo all the way to Texarkana. So it's it's on my on my mind and in my heart. And some of, you get a little of it in, um, in in book two, but it actually has to do more with Native Americans. And, and, yeah. Yes, Malcolm. The character is is it just how he feels about the law, or is it going to come out in actions? It comes out in actions in terms of, for him specifically, like when the reason why he is we meet him in court is because he got a phone call one night from a dear friend saying, "I got one of these Aaron brothers in Texas people on my land right now. I'm about to fucking kill this guy." And Darren is like, no, no, I don't want this old black man to end up going to prison for it. Let me get out there and try and deal with it. And what he ended up, he ended up quieting the whole situation, or thinks he did, until that cracker ends up dead two days later. And everybody thinks that the old black man did it. And there's a question about, did Darren hide some stuff and information about it? So he gets played out in his behavior. When is it okay, or when is it safe for me to follow the rules? Like, or when do I need to kind of bend the rules to reach for a higher moral, whatever. And you cut me off like you always do. Does he land on one side or another, or do you, did you work hard to like, I know like David Simon tried really hard not to pass judgment or take a side. Did you land on one side or other, do you think, with the book? Um, no, I didn't pass judgment. I let it be really messy. And I remember, I don't want to give away anything about the ending, but it's messy. And I remember thinking for a minute, how, oh no, people are going to hate him. But, you know, so. That is Malcolm Spellman from Empire. Or, he doesn't work there anymore, but we were, um, how do you put it, Malcolm? Work spouses. Yeah, we were work spouses. We were work spouses, that is accurate. 
we fought a lot. <laughs> Anybody else? Yes, please. This is your fourth book, Lee. And I want to ask you something that I already did ask you for the profile. Do you think of yourself as a mystery writer or as a black writer? I don't know either, really. I mean, I think of myself as a black writer because I just think of myself as black. So I'm a black person paying her parking ticket. I'm a black person at Whole Foods. Like, I just think I'm black, not all the time. So I do think of myself as a black writer, probably more so than I think of myself as a mystery writer. It's just kind of, I, I do, I'm aware of a kind of pejorative around genre fiction. And I, I do remember when my first book, Blackwater Rising, came out, I went into book soup. I just wanted to, I thought the earth would shift the first day your book was public. It did not. <laughs> nobody cared and nobody was in the store thinking about me. But I saw my book in the mystery section. I said, why is it there? And the person at book soup was like, I don't know. This is kind of what the, what the publisher said to do, but you can move it. And I did. And I went and moved it in general fiction. And I got my car. I went, why did you do that? Now, if somebody wants a mystery, then I go find it. Like, so I don't really know the answer to any of it. I just um, know that I like to write about crime, and and I'm aware of the pejorative around it. But it, it has larger um, it has larger philosophical things for me. I think of crime as a way to express. I've said many times that every novel is a crime novel, whether it's a crime of heart, a crime of passion. Um, Beloved is a crime novel. Um, Every novel is there's a there's a there's a wound, um, there's a transgression at the center of it, and I think when I think about crime, I think about it's the way the way we contemplate crime and tell these stories is us trying to navigate scarcity on the planet, like and whether you're talking about scarcity of love, scarcity of goods, um, scarcity of attention, it's us trying to figure out. In a, on a planet with finite resources, how we're all going to navigate this together. And some people do it buck wild, and some people don't. And I'm kind of curious about the ones that go buck wild. And I think I'm interested in, in trying to figure that out. And I also, I said this before, I'm a woman. So I think playing out really scary stuff is me playing out like, if I can write a crazy person in a book, maybe I will spot them at Walgreens. <laughs> you know, like maybe I'll like I'll crack some code. Um, that's why I watch Dateline and stuff to figure out. Oh, you should be looking at them like. <laughs> yes. Can I ask her first one? Okay. Um, I'm fascinated by the title, and also I'm seeing the movie when you're reading it. Oh. Something. I think this will probably have, I hope that it has a life on the screen, but in the writing of it, I was, I tried to be true to just prose and not really think about that. Um, the title was from a John Lee Hooker song. And um, the, the, the lyric is, Bluebird, Bluebird, take this letter down south with me. And where it lands in the book is quite significant. And so it just felt like, and I remember we were coming up with all kind of other titles, and I kept sliding this one in, thinking, oh, I'll never get away with this. And then finally, somebody at the publisher just was willing to like take a big chance on something that seemed esoteric and different, but I like it a lot. Go, Claire. Yes. Well, you've been out to uh, Rose Hill on Papa Jean's property, stuff like that, just being in East Texas. 
Yes. So I, you were saying that the inner characters and the like towards the wall is something that you have experienced personally. I was wondering, in your process of writing this, has that shifted a little bit? Because I think it's really cool that you bring a character like this in an honest way, and given everything that's going on in the country, I think mm -hmm. it's really important for black folks to get more well, first of all, let's just say this book was written before Trump. I mean, not I mean, he was around acting stupid, yeah. but <laughs> the morning that he was elected, I remember, well, not the morning, because I was too busy running my mouth and my pajamas on NPR, but <laughs> I remember feeling a sense of, oh my God, my whole book just shifted, and I didn't change a word, but just suddenly it mattered in a kind of a different way. And it felt bold for me to put in print things like saying that, that his uncles believed that black life was holy and that it was worthy of being continued and lived. It, that felt kind of bold to, for me to say. Um, but I do think that there are black cops out there, and that's what I got from reading Ghetto Side, that there are black cops out there that believe that. Um, there are other black cops out there that are just blue and, and whatever. but. Anyway, I just thought it was interesting. I thought it was interesting. I actually have two tw identical twin great uncles um, who were different. They weren't nearly that different. And they didn't fight over a woman, but that's not. <laughs> but, um, but I thought that that identical twins was a way to represent the kind of fracture in the black psyche of like, you know, my I spent my entire life between the, pole, the poles of, I'm going a weird place, but when, when Anne Frank says in, in her diary, in spite of everything, I still believe people are good at heart. And then her father saying she puts me to shame. I live between those poles. Like, I'm not, I want to be that optimist, and yet, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Yes? One of the things that you said, um, I really, first of all, I really enjoy it, and I can have you do more reading. I'm closing my eyes and having this audio experience. <laughs> Um, one of the things that you said of, you know, the reverse action of a black man dying before yes. a white woman, and over here this in the corner, we've got this Till book, which made me think about the woman yeah. who, for which he died, Yes. recently stating it was all made up, mm -hmm. and that just kind of being a quick hit mm -hmm. in the news and no further action. Yeah, that did kind of come and go, that you know, bit. Um, but yeah, just just that process, I think, at this time, as you're saying, after him being elected, and this, uh, with the time being for black voices to be telling right. the story of our American history that is overlooked. You know, I'm, I'm, it's so wild out there that it, you just, you can, we're past being cute and polite about it. We're fighting for our, and I'm not talking about, I am talking about black people. I'm talking about America. We are literally fighting for our absolute existence. Uh, that, that we as a republic make any, is real. The, the, the most pain I feel these days is the realization that there's no there there. That if everybody didn't all kind of follow the rule, this ain't a thing. America is not a thing right now is what it feels like. Because if y'all aren't all fault, you doing whatever the fuck, then what is this? You know, nobody's coming in to save us. Nobody's coming in to save us. Anybody else? Hi, Jamie. Um, Darren's life really struggles with his tax to tax with law enforcement and feels like it's not what she signed up for. And I'm curious if you, why you felt it was important to include that perspective and if you felt sympathetic toward her because he doesn't. 
Yes, I, I, in, in, in the parts that I read here, the other thing to understand, oh, well, no, you did, I did read the part where he was in law school, he was going to be an attorney. So her whole point, his wife is, mm, I was supposed to be married to a lawyer. How did I end up with a cop? Like, that's not what I signed up for. Um, and I also think that she um, is an urban person. She's, like, born and raised in Houston and doesn't have a love for the rural stuff that he, I think he mentioned one time in the book, Maybe we could live out on the own old home place one day. She laughed out loud. Like she's not doing that. Like she's in St. John Nets and driving a Lexus, and so she just isn't into the kind of Lone Star Swire. And there are people who live in urban centers in Texas who aren't enamored of uh, the kind of Lone Star, what have you. You know, um, I am very sympathetic to her, especially you know his feelings for the wife, the, the <laughs> wife of the. Um, dead man get complicated, so I do feel very sorry for his wife. One or two more questions. Sure. Yes, sir. I'm curious about your process with the demands of the television show. What is your writing process? Uh, how does that work for you? Well, I actually left the show, so that's that, but I did write this while I was on the show, and um, Josh can attest to the fact that I went into Eric's office one day and was on, on the verge of tears because I felt like I had no life. I worked all day at the show and then I worked all weekend long. I just sat in bed and just wrote all weekend long and I felt like I was failing at both and that I had no life. Um, so, yeah, that was that was hard in here. But um, <laughs> essentially, if I don't really have a fancy process because I can't afford one. I have a, a child and I can't, the older you get, the more you realize as a writer, you can't count on, you got lights and candles and the door's gotta be closed and the phone can't, you can't have all that. Cause it's a lot, you're living a life. And so I've learned to be able to, you just grab the time where you can get it. Uh, and you try to, don't say anything Carl, cause he knows the truth of how neurotic I am. But you try to be kind to yourself. Shut up. <laughs> and you try to be very kind to yourself, and you just say, you get you get done what you get done when you can get it done. Does that make any sense? I just can't afford to have a, a perfect process anymore. It would look like just hours and hours to myself without having to answer to anybody, talk to anybody. But then the second I'm done, I want y'all to run around. That's all he did. Like, so it's not really fair. I'm like, go away, go away. But now I'm done, so entertain me. Did you leave the show because you were done? With the show? Yeah. Yeah, I was done. It, it was it was the most fun thing I've ever done in my life. There are so many people here from that show because I love them. And I, I guess they love me too because they came. But it was just one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. But it was just time to go. It was just, you know, for me, it was time to go. Yeah. One more. Nobody. Don't be shy. Uh, uh, I'm on fire. <laughs> All right. All right. That's all. Thank you. Again, I know that it's very much still in development, but anything you can tell us about what we might expect in the 59 series? I know that you know you were saying earlier that the stories would take place. Yeah. Um, it will be different characters. Will some be threaded through the novels? I'm sorry. I just organized. Lashley Haynes coming with her son. Um, all I can say is next, the next book takes place in, around Cattle Lake. That, that's pretty much all I can say. And Cattle Lake is 
on the border of, it, Caddo Lake is like nothing you've ever seen in your entire life. It is 25 square miles, the lake. It crosses into Louisiana. So you could get on a boat in Texas and just take that boat into Louisiana. And it used to be a lot of steamboat travel and all that. And that's why I went with Dad. Yeah, that's why I went with Dad to stay in a cabin and I made him bring a gun. That is why. <laughs> but um, so that's, and that, that's a challenge too because it is a very different flavor than this book. Because that is more like, the music is more like Zydeco and um, the food's different. And, and so I'm nervous about you know being able to, when people love the new thing, you know, uh, as much as I hope they like this book, but um, that's all I know because I only know about book two. I mean, I have story ideas that I know because the idea is if there's a new mystery or whatever every book, but there are through there are big problems in Darren's life that, and that's the, that is the influence of TV, honestly. That being on Empire taught me, hey, it's kind of fun to hang out with people for a minute, and so I'm letting as you do in TV seasons be connected. So the books will be, they'll be big um, soap operatic or personal problems in Darren's life that will continue um, while there are new stories to deal with. So. Hi. Thank you guys. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.